I mean, I remember David Bowie telling me we're in, we're in a stall at J.S. Van Damme's in New York doing coke. And he says, how's it feel to have taken some of the greatest pictures ever of David Bowie? You can imagine high out of my mind to hear that out of his mouth in a little cubicle was pretty awesome, you know. But that having shot him was, you know, that was major and uh, on every level because I had so much respect for him and love for him as a person. Hey, everybody, this is Alan Clark with the Photo Untaken podcast, conversations from outside the frame. On today's podcast episode, I'm not sure even where to start, to be honest with you. I've played this game with my friends. They usually joke with me about, you know, trying to guess some of the famous people that I've worked with. And trust me, over a 30-year career, it's been, you know, there's been a lot. But for every person that's like me, there's a person that has done everything. And I mean everything and everyone three times over. One of those guys that I've looked up to for years and years when it comes to commercial photography and celebrity photography is Greg Gorman. It's almost easier for me to talk about what star or celebrity that Greg hasn't worked with than it would be for me to talk about who he has. I think about the movie posters that Greg's worked on, movies that are some of my favorites like Tootsie or Last of the Mohicans, The Big Chill. And then you're like, well, he worked in the 70s and the 80s. Nope. Hurt Locker, Italian Job, Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) The list goes on and on and on. Uh, This one blows me away, though. Scarface. Yeah, Scarface. He said he worked on that one for six weeks. And it's one of the most iconic movies of all time in America, anyway. Some of the most famous musical artists that he's worked with are people like Elton John and multiple projects for David Bowie, including some of his biggest records. Just blows me away that, uh, that he has these images in his portfolio. You know, he and I met on the evenings with the Master Series from Nobechi Creative. Uh, we, we were all in lockdown on, you know, during COVID. And Nobechi had this amazing little series online that we all were a part of. I was one of the masters. Greg was one of the masters. And that's how I met him. When each evening was over with, um, at the end of our presentations, everybody, you know, would do like a Q&A. And after that, we would just all hang out for a long time. And so a lot of us became friends that way. And then, of course, Greg and I have always talked over the last couple of years. Uh, I actually went and spent some time with him out in L.A. uh, over a year ago. And I can call Greg Gorman a friend. Greg has so many great qualities to him. I think the thing that you're going to pick up on the most is just how real Greg is. That's what I love about him the most. He's just real. Greg has had a long career. It's a masterful one, and it's prolific. But, you know, he hasn't quit. The guy's 74, and you would think that he's gotten tired of shooting commercially, but he hasn't. Uh, You would think the guy would rest and not do anything, but he hasn't. He's still going, and I just appreciate that about him so much. But, you know, shooting commercially just isn't his main interest right now. He loves working on his books, and he has a new book out. And the new book is called Homage, which is an homage to tribal artists. Um, In addition to this new book that's out, he has over 12 books uh, that he's put out. One of them is called Inside Life. Uh, There's another one called Outside the Studio that he did. It was kind of a journalistic documentary-style Uh, book, very gritty and amazing. Now his latest book is called homage and he did a collaboration with Gary Johns on this. And it's this amazing collection of voodoo objects, I guess is the best way to describe it. And he would photograph these and then Gary would do these amazing like art pieces with them. So it's a really cool collaboration. Uh, the new book is out. It's just coming out. It's in a limited edition. He's got one that's a limited edition that I think with, that comes with two signed prints for, uh, $1,250 and it's just amazing. (laughs) And you can see it online on his website. Oh, the other thing I cannot 
fail to mention is his tireless work with the Elton John's Aid Foundation. He and Elton have been friends for years, but also in addition to that, they have worked tirelessly to raise money for AIDS. And so that's another thing that I know that Greg's heart is in. Today, this conversation that we have is so uh, mind-blowing and also just uh, informative, and you can see and, and hear and feel how real Greg is. I hope you enjoy it. Greg Gorman, thank you so much for joining today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Hanging in there. How's weather out in L.A.? Well, it was chilly as hell last night. I was walking back from lunch yesterday and uh, in the afternoon, and it was chilly for L.A. Huh. Ta- LA temps. It was What's chilly for L.A.? Mid-50s. Not terrible. I know. Not that terrible. doesn't sound very cold. <laughs> I know. I'm <laughs> like, it was a little bit chilly that? and damp, but uh, the weather overall has been pretty good considering I just got back from Kansas City and the weather varied from 17 degrees in the morning to, you know, 60 in the daytime sometimes. It's insane. Um I'm also hitting this button to do a quick time at the same time. And that way I've got two versions. Backup version, Greg, you know, this as photographers. That's all we do is always have our backup for our backup. I panicked looking for that shot of my limited edition this morning. I could not find it. My retoucher couldn't find it. And finally I had to find it in an email so that I had the file name. That's I'm not the best at file naming and file conventions, but boy, when you can't find something, you all of a sudden realize the importance of uh, knowing where the hell your stuff is. Well, how about just the fact that both of us have had a career that spans years in all of the files and scans and shoots and contact sheets and the amount of filing that we have to do to archive who we are is insane. And you've probably got me beat by a couple of years and (laughs) it's just insane, (laughs) but it's insane how much work we have to do to not just, Oh, you know, it costs me thousands of dollars a month just for the storage for right. all this cold storage for all the negatives and transparencies. Right. Do you have to manage that? Do you have somebody help that helps manage the archive? Not really. I do pretty much. I have a, a one personal assistant, but he doesn't really do much of that end of it. Actually, he kind of he'll pick up do these you, files and bring them to me. So, and do I don't you really trust do much. anyone to do that. You know what I mean? That's a big part of it too. Is yeah. trusting well, someone to yeah, handle that? I guess I would, but at this point, it's just all in cold storage where I probably belong. A lot of, most of us know your career. Most of us know your work. And if you haven't, you've been living under a rock. Greg Gorman has been one of the foremost photographers in our country for, gosh, years. Um, but a lot, a lot of us don't know about your beginning, like how you started, where you started, what made you decide to be a photographer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I grew up in Kansas City. And uh, in the late 60s, I borrowed a friend of mine's camera to shoot a Jimi Hendrix concert, knowing nothing about uh photography or anything other than the fact that I had third row center seats to see him. And I said to my friend, it was a buddy I used to go hunting and fishing with down in the Murray to Seine region. I said to him, Buzz, uh, what should I do? He said, shoot Tri-X 60th of a second, F5, 6, you'll get a picture. And that's what I did. And the following morning, I went back over to his house and went in his basement and we processed the film. And then when I saw that first image coming up on this white piece of paper out of nowhere, I was completely and I thought this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And so then I enrolled in photojournalism school that fall in 1968 at the University of Kansas. But all they really offered were courses in photojournalism. But that's what I took because that was the photography courses. And then later, after a couple of years there, I transferred to USC and got a major in uh, cinematography. I actually got a master of fine arts from USC around 1972. And what I learned about lighting is what I was learning in studio lighting and for film. 
more than still pictures. But I still had that passion for still photography and decided, you know, I didn't really want to go into the aspect of being a cinematographer where they'd always go for a better acting take than a camera take. So that yeah. threw me back into the corner of uh, my still work. And that's kind of how it all began. Long-winded answer, but there you go. No, no, no. I've heard worse. Much longer answers. That was actually pretty succinct. Um, the funny thing to me is in the way that I see you and actually how I relate to you is that you do so many things. You've been and shot so many things and it doesn't seem like there's not a label on you in any way. What That's what I love about you. You see a lot of the work. It could be music. It could be celebrity. It could be fashion. It could be just strictly nudes. It could be a lot of things, and especially with this new work that you've got. That's what I love the most about you is that I can't really go, Oh, Greg Gorman is only this. And it seems like that's been something that you've been able to maintain throughout your career is just not being labeled or categorized. How do you feel about that statement? Is that accurate or not? Well, yeah, in some, in some ways, I mean, I think my style is relatively distinctive and I think I would probably Definitely. consider myself, you know, a portrait photographer if I had Definitely. to label me, but also fine art work is also the figure studies. But uh, I guess, you know, kind of getting back to what you're saying around the around 19, I don't know, around 10 years ago, something like that, maybe a little bit longer. Um, I just felt like I had been there and done that in the realm of celebrity and, all the movie work and everything. And I longer ago than that, actually it's probably 30 years ago. I decided I wanted to do some venture something else. And I didn't want to lose my passion for photography. So that's when I decided to become an educator and get into, into doing my workshops and teaching. And uh, that's brought me a lot of uh, happiness and satisfaction, being able to share what knowledge I do have with up and coming <laughs> photographers, many older than I am even, but people with a passion, I should say. And, uh, so then I kind of reinvented myself in that respect because the passion and drive for the, both for the personality photography and even so much as in, in some respects, the, the figure studies, the nudes needed to be channeled in a different direction if I wasn't going to lose my drive and passion for photography. And that's when I kind of got into education and teaching and doing my workshops. And by the same token, if I take it to the next level, uh, that's during COVID, I had this project, which I guess we're going to talk about a little bit about today. I had a pretty large collection of African uh, voodoo and fetish dolls and masks, tribal art. And I always jokingly said, you know, I'll never shoot anything that can't talk back to me. And of course, that's one of the primary <laughs> things I teach in my workshops, step outside your comfort zone and try something else and fall in your face and yeah. see where it takes you. Yeah. And that's kind of where the project was born. And hmm. so I thought, you know, I'll give it a stab. And then, of course, we can talk about it later, whatever. It evolved into much more than that. Yeah, it did. And, you know, to me, I feel, I feel like with you, maybe, definitely me, a lot of this just comes from curiosity. Would you say that you're more curious or that you're more driven? Driven. Yeah? <laughs> driven from a sense of curiosity, I should say. So, yes, it stems nice. from curiosity. I mean, for me, it was, can I photograph these objects? What will they, how will they respond to me? I mean, I'd never shot something that couldn't talk back to me. So I shot the portraits of these uh this African tribal art, just like I'd uh, attack a portrait. I mean, I had a, some mm. of them, they're very small, you know, so they were sitting kind of in a bed of rice in a bowl on a lazy Susan so I could turn them into the light and away from the light. Because some of these are like four or six inches high. So everything, not only was I shooting inanimate objects, but I was shooting uh, very small features, which meant that I had to shoot everything with a macro lens. Right. And, you know, undergoing this and I and I lit them just like my portraits. I used additive and subtractive light, as you know, from us playing together and, uh, yep. you know, bounce fill everything just like a portrait. And I would 
put the lights on the left side of the camera, the lights on the right side of the camera. And I use the same lights I do my portraits with, not little miniature lights. So it was kind of mm. a fun project. I work with my road lights, you know, with the, a yeah. Titan X1 and the Neos and the AOS. And so it was a, a, a crazy project. And uh, what I didn't know going into it was that when I would find the right angle, I would shoot three or four portraits of each figure and do it. Um, I would have to take like anywhere, depending on how the proximity of myself to the subjects, anywhere from 15 to 25 captures doing a focus stack to keep the depth of field and everything mm. in focus. And then I would later have to align and blend it in Photoshop. So it became a far more technical challenge on top of just the photographic part. Interesting. What do you think excites you more, um, lighting or subject? Well, the subjects are certainly what excite me. I mean, my whole uh, fashion with the world of personality over uh, much more over uh, fashion, so to speak, because I never really did that much fashion. It was just the engagement of the people in front of my lens, you know, being able to come up or down to their level to get a connected portrait. Hmm. Through the years. So let's go back before we get into the African tribal art. Let's go back to your early build. So you did this uh, Jimi Hendrix concert, got you excited. Then you started kind of big, uh, digging into it, then went to school, film school, did the degrees. At what point did you think, well, you know what, I'm going to make a run at this commercial photography thing. And then like, who were some of the early celebrities that even trusted you or the publicists that trusted you to photograph their celebrities? I met a person during one of my shoots in Kansas city, Gene Parsons, who was the drummer of the band, the birds, they were enjoying quite a oh, bit yeah. of success at that time with eight miles high. And, you know, I talked to them backstage at a high local high school where they were performing. And I said to uh, Gene Parsons said to me, so what do you, what do you want to do? He said, I said, oh, I'm going to move to California and become a photographer. And lo and behold, uh, he said, here's my number. This is what a nice guy was. This is, a, you know, at the pinnacle of his career. And to this day, he's still a dear friend of mine. He lives actually out oh, up in Mendocino. I called him. And, and when I was kind of down on my luck, they were getting ready to tour. He let me stay in his house during wow. a three-month stint to help me get on my feet. And ironically, that was one of, uh, this is kind of a long roundabout answer, but they let me shoot some of the pictures from one of the early Birds albums. Really? I shot Leon Russell in my apartment in Laurel Canyon with a I had to stand in the hallway to photograph it. It was a small apartment. And wow. I had a bar a friend of mine's Hasselblad. I'd never even shot with the Hasselblad. I didn't even know what it was. And Leon looked up to me and he says, uh, where's your Polaroid? And I said, what do I want a Polaroid for? I've got a Hasselblad. I didn't even know you needed a Polaroid camera back. That's so funny that's, that he knew. That's, that he knew. That's, that's how funny. far back it goes. So, I mean, early on, I got my early, early photo shoots were I did a lot of work for a theater arts magazine called After Dark. William Como. And I shot people like Tony Perkins, Susan Terrell, Dennis Christopher. Wow. Oh my gosh. Uh, Michelle uh, Phillips from the Mamas and Papas. Yeah. A lot of great, uh, great characters, you know. So uh, that helped get me going. That helped kind of early, in the early building stages. Well, it was some early editorial. So that definitely helped. And then really towards uh, the late 70s, early 80s, actually, I met a wonderful person, became socially a friend of mine, Barbara DeWitt, who was the late sister of uh, Bruce Weber. And yeah. she hired me to shoot David Bowie, who was one of her clients. I did Iggy Pop. And, you know, from there, that wow. helped get some early clients from the music wow. industry, which was a big help. And then in the, in the film world, I was doing working as a, a special photographer on low budget Roger Corman movies and little things where you could just no go way. and shoot. Yeah. And wow. then, uh, Early on, I, I was very lucky to get, you know, a real feather in my cap. I photographed on a picture called Grease 2. 
And the young actor that was a star was a gentleman named Maxwell Caulfield. And at the time, he was kind of the darling boy of Broadway, off-Broadway, in entertaining Mr. Sloan. And Interview Magazine wanted him for a cover. And since I had the access, ironically, on the movie set, they called me. And that was a huge break for me because then I started shooting coverage for Interview Magazine, which really helped put me on the map in the early 80s. I shot you know more than a dozen, 15 covers for them. And... Wow. uh those pictures that got out there, you know, when people saw them in Interview Magazine, that really helped. And from there, you know, came the LA Iwerks ad campaign and right. Andy Warhol wanting to be in an ad. And that became my most legendary picture. And all during this time, I also started working on movies and uh, was very lucky to have gotten some great movies in my uh, corner early on. I shot the campaigns for Tootsie, Big Chill, Scarface, wow. later on Pirates of the Caribbean. Scarface, everybody, did you hear that? Scarface, that's amazing. Yeah, I did six weeks on that with Al, which was great. Wow. We, had, we had an amazing time. So that's kind of how it all started. Did Andy see some of your work when you were doing work with the interview? Or did, well, of course, just, yes, of course. No, absolutely. Course I didn't know how involved he was with the magazine. Very involved. Robert Hayes was the art director. Yeah. And uh, I, that's who was gave me all my early break with the interview, which was really good. That's amazing. And uh, Andy did see the stuff and he would, I, Andy was over at my house in Laurel Canyon and stuff, you know, so we knew each other pretty well. That's fantastic. Um, up until this moment, I didn't know that you and I both, both had worked for interview and both had shot Leon Russell. I didn't know that at all. I, I, I didn't really? think I shot, shot Leon a bunch of times and we became pretty good friends around the time when he was hanging out with Gary Busey. And uh, <laughs> I took Leon down to the LA. My dad was in the furniture business and uh, Leon had just bought a house out here. He moved out from Tulsa, I guess, or Oklahoma City, wherever he was. And uh, I took him down there and helped him furnish his house. So I'm walking, I walked through the whole furniture, LA, Los Angeles home furnishings, Mart with Leon with his cane and that long white beard. He yeah. was great. Very nice guy. I just couldn't crack it. I couldn't crack. He would not let me in. It just, it, I was on the outside looking in. He didn't want me to be there. I don't know what it was. I was working for Musician Magazine at the time. And I encourage, I always encourage young photographers to always do editorial. Sure, it didn't pay crap, but it does get you th other things. It's almost like an indirect effect on your career yeah, a lot of times. Absolutely, you Alan. You get you have access to people that you ordinarily would not have access to. And, yeah. you know, one of the things I always encourage kids to do is that, that uh, when they get the assignment shot, and if they've had a good relationship with the talent in front of their lens, do their own thing afterwards. Ask the thing, could you, we, we try another shot for me so that they all have a personal shot within the style of their mentality of what they're thinking. And right. that way they can create a really nice portfolio. I, I try to tell students that too, just do their thing, do one for you, always do one for you. I don't know if you remember like during my uh, evenings with the masters presentation. That's kind of what yeah. I talked about that night. Was Absolutely. Always no, one for yourself, always one for yourself because no one's going to do this for you. No one's going to help you out. I mean, they're going to hire you for things, but you're there. You're right. part of a, you're part of the process. I mean, you're not like the most important thing they've ever seen. So you got to do one for you because no one cares about your work as much as you do. And that's what you did. You were able to do that. I was able to do that and get some of the things that I wanted. And I just absolutely love that we've had a similar build, even though you took it to the ninth degree. I kind of like at some point I kind of lost heart, kind of like you did with the celebrity thing. I just, I don't know. I, I don't know that I resent having to have my work always compared to a celebrity, but I do kind of a little bit like, it just seems like it's a dog and pony show after a while. You just celebrity, 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 you just keep churning them out, churning them out. And I would like my work to be great or viewed as great without having to lean on that. 
Does that make any sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I always joke about a lot of my fame and notoriety has come by proxy. I mean, it's hysterical. It's only because I shot this one or I'm friends with that one. And it's guilt by association. You know, if I could have been a plumber, I don't (laughs) think people would have remembered me as much yet. I think they'd appreciate me more when their toilets are stopped up than having shot, you know, Barbara Streisand or Bette Midler, you know, how did you personality wise, when you had these big personalities on set with you, did you have to kind of peacock up a little bit yourself? Did you have to kind of rise the level of your personality and kind of be able to compete? Oh, I mean, I think you have to have a strong personality. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's also a personality that has to be flexible because of some of the egos that you're dealing with. And not only that, oftentimes it's not their ego, but it's a publicist's demands or agent's demands or manager's demands. So, you know, yes, you had to be able to come up or down to people's level. You had to make them feel like they're playing for your team. I mean, the whole game of celebrity is winning their trust and confidence to get that connected portrait. How did it begin for you when you started making friendships with a lot of these celebrities? You know, you, you would, I guess you just showed up as real probably. And that kind of, they can tell, they can tell a bullshitter. They can tell an ass kisser in the room. You know what I mean? And then you weren't that. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's like in any profession, you make, you make friends with the people you work with, the ones you like, you connect with the ones that are okay. You just, you know, you, go your own way, but say how are you? It's good. And the ones you don't like, you remember. So I think for me, um, those friendships were very crucial to my career because I became known for someone that could get in there and get the picture. And, uh, you know, a lot of the creatives and art directors didn't like that particularly. Some of them loved it and some of it hated it because the ones that didn't love it felt they lost control because let's say Pierce Mm. Brosnan was doing a movie and he says, I want Greg Gorman to shoot this. Well, maybe they have a different photographer on their mind that they want to shoot the campaign, but by contract, the talent oftentimes could choose the photographer they wanted to work with. And, you know, that didn't always please an art director. Sometimes, you know, they were happy to do that. And other times they go, you know, I wanted to go in a totally different direction. And their, their hands are sometimes locked by the talent. But that's what really helped a lot in my career. I got a lot of you know, pretty high profile people as clients that when they had a project, Greg Gorman got the call. Isn't that amazing how much personality has to do with this and how, it, how it is that there's oh, it's a personality me, business. Yeah, it is. And and you can't just go in. I know some photographers who aren't great at this and somehow they will get the work, but I feel like you don't have two things going for you. You've only got one thing going for you. If you've got a personality or great personality, you're kind of coming into the room with a double barrel shotgun a little bit and you can kind of have more power. Like you said, well, it's important because there's a big vacuum there and you've got to fill yeah. that emptiness and that void, which stems around a lot of paranoia from the talent in front of the lens. Insecure, I yeah. shouldn't say paranoia, but insecurity. Well, trust. And, you know? and trust. And so you've got to be present and filling that void. And, and, you know, you're playing psychologist to not only the talent in front of your lens, but the entire crew there besides your own team, let's say, that are the people surrounding the talent, which is kind of their insular area that you have to kind of be able to breakthrough, but at the same time, work with to get the results that you're looking for. People used to ask me what I do for a living. And I used to say, I talk girls down from ledges. <laughs> no, yeah, it's everybody. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of what we're doing, we're just talking people down from ledges. They need to feel comfortable in front of us. They need to trust us. But at the same time, they need to feel good about themselves. Right. This needs to be a good experience right. for them. And I always say this, when you're trying something like you and I, we, in the old days, we did lighting days before the shoot ever happened. So we don't right. try some new little technique out on the day of the shoot. You do it days before the shoot. Right. And um, 
it's just like that. You know, you've got to be present and you need to have this rehearsed to the point where it's kind of on autopilot day of shoot so that you can be more present. Because if you're not, you're just sitting there thinking technically and trying to deal with all that type of stuff. And all the assistants are all trying to help you figure out the lighting. And that's not what needs to happen. What needs to happen is this seems to be like a smooth thing. They need to leave the shoot thinking that was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Well, exactly. You know, because most, most, uh, talent find it painful doing photo sessions and if you can make them uh if you're time conscious that's the thing i find the most with them this how long is this going to take and i remember i remember elizabeth taylor asking me she says how long should this shoot be i said as long as you want to make it but you've got to give me a little bit of time i said i said i can probably do it in a half an hour she goes that's music to my ears or whatever you know it took us a couple hours probably but she was okay with it you know she was great to make a client happy what's the most ridiculous thing you've ever done i hired a masseuse once to be on set before they came to me, I would send them to the masseuse first, then to makeup, then to me. Have you done anything like that to kind of appease your client? Yeah, it depends on how long you've got. I can, I'll give yeah. you two quick ones. I know I was working with Heath Ledger on one of his last movies in Venice, Italy, on uh, Casanova. And they said, you know, uh, Heath is not really a big fan of doing pictures, but he knows that you're a big wino. And uh, Disney said at the time, I think if we have some great wines on the set, you know, probably keep his attention for a while. So they gave me a budget of like $2,500 and I went out and bought a half a dozen bottles of like the very highest in. Then you gorgeous. know your wine. Barolos, Bar- Barbarescos and big super Tuscans. And so we had a great afternoon and he stayed until the last bottle was drunk and then gone. Wow. And then in terms of ridiculous things, uh, Adam Sandler said he needed a basketball court set up on my patio. He needed a, a ring that he could practice shooting hoops. I mean, I could give you 50 stories, but there's a couple. So that's a great one. That's a great one. And, yeah. and, um, was it not at the, the house that I went to that the basketball court wasn't there? It was actually at the studio. This was just in my courtyard off of the kitchen in my studio. Yeah, okay. he could throw hoops. He loves basketball, that guy. That's crazy. I guess. Um, what's the latest, like, what's your last, I guess, celebrity shoot that you've worked on that you really like? George Washington in 1892, I think. was. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the last celebrity shoot I did. What was the last celebrity shoot that I did? See, these questions always leave me befuddled because I I used to be able to rattle them off. I mean, I, I God bless him. I did a you know big shoot with Leslie Jordan before he passed away, which yeah. was you know, really wonderful. Very recent ones. God, that's a good question. I have to look at well, my, you know, John Waters. I shot John Waters just very recently for some new pictures. We just, just shot those not too long ago. You know, it's not that I shoot that often commercially, but uh, oh, there's been a handful, but if I think of them, I'll let you know. But that, yeah, yeah John Waters. You know what? Those last. are great. I'm like not Leslie shooting ever- every day, so yeah. Leslie's a Tennessee boy, so he came from Chattanooga, yeah. and he's out there. And so he, was he was a lovely much, guy. I love. I don't know if you saw this, but did you see how the country music market just yeah, embraced yeah. Leslie? And I'm like, whoa, that is a, country music has come a yeah. long oh, yeah, way. Of course I did. I mean, he was just a charming, great guy. Yeah, he is. He's wonderful. And but I'm kind of like hats off to country music. Jeez, Louise, that, this is 20 years ago. That would have never happened. You know? No, they embraced him and. Uh, you know, he did okay. I think with the album and the religious stuff, he did okay. It was pretty good. Yeah. Pretty awesome. I thought it was sweet. His little hymns that he was singing and stuff. We all did. And he would show up at the Titans games a lot. He was a Titans fan, not a Chiefs yeah. fan. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, he would show up at the Titans games. We joked about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Um, we'll talk about the Titans later uh, or the Chiefs later. But um, <laughs> let's get back. Let's get back to, you know, some of the things that maybe at some point, did you like just dealing with personalities and things like that? Cause we're still kind of in your build. 
what were some of the projects? I remember the uh, eyewear project that you did with, I mean, that, that was that- the other big uh, factor that helped launch my career. The, the first was really the motion, uh, the interview magazine, but also every month I, I got this campaign to shoot for LA Eyeworks. And that's actually Gary Johns when we transitioned yep, nice. on this level. He was the uh, creative director behind the LA Eyeworks campaign that I shot okay, with him for over 200 ads, still shooting him. I'm booking one this week to shoot Cherry Vanilla, one of the earlier Warhol and Bowie and around the oh, fall those wow. days. Great, I haven't even uh, thought great. about And she that. looks fabulous. She's 80 really? years old and That's looks like amazing. a million dollars. She was over here the other night and I said, wow. I said, I've never seen you look better. She said, oh, I just did a detox or something, but she looked phenomenal. <laughs> so while she's uh, at the top of her game, I'm going to snag her for a portrait because uh, 80s pretty awesome. Yeah, so yeah, it we actually were scheduled to talk later. We've been playing phone tag for two days, but I just That's got the go-ahead for the uh, shoot for LAI Works. It's so funny, you know, today they all want to have the youngest, hippest, coolest people. But, you know, I still am, you know, at, at 73, I say, you know, when you have the opportunity of shooting someone like Cherry Vanilla, who, you know, goes down in history as, you know, you know, we have a big archive for those ads. And so yeah. we missed a couple of major ones, which, you know, I'm, I'm sad about and that we didn't well, get to who, shoot. Who were, who were the ones? Well, that you I, got well Betty Davis was one. Oh, you know. I was going to ask you about that. That's so funny. Yeah, that makes and all she, the she'd agreed to do one, but then she passed away. I talked to her just like that week that she passed oh. away. She was in San Sebastopol for the film festival. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. Um, well, that's fantastic. And so, yeah, the, I mean, some of the ones that, obviously, Andy Warhol's ad was amazing. The one with... Well, I think the interesting thing about Andy was the ads had been appearing in Interview Magazine since 1982, I believe. It was like a, every face is like a work of art. It deserves a great yeah. frame. And I think the pinnacle of the campaign came when Andy called me and asked me if he could be in one of the ads. He had just signed a contract with Ford Models to model. And so he came out to L.A. and we sh- I shot him. And, uh, you know, that went on to become probably my most significant picture of my career. Yeah. What was he like? Quiet, but funny. And, you know, he was kind of nervous energy and always kind of looking around. And he stuttered a little bit. He and uh was that from the nervousness you think i don't know maybe but you know he was great i mean i several times when he would come to la i'd entertain him or take him out you know in the evening to do things and stuff and when he went to florida i fixed him up with a friend of mine to show him around because he didn't really know a lot of people wanted to know who i knew that could help him out and all that kind of stuff yeah I'm about done with the celebrity stuff. I think we need to move on to, you know, I'm I about done with the celebrity stuff too. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I'm, no, you know, I'm, I still do stuff with like Grace Jones and with Elton and stuff. Friends of mine that I've known for 40 years, you know. Yeah. We still do Have you ever worked together. with Laurie Anderson? Have you ever worked with Laurie Anderson? No, I met her. She came and saw when I had one of my rudest books. She came with, uh, uh, God bless him, who passed away. It was her husband was uh, Lou Reed. Oh, Lou. Yeah, they came to, I had a show, a really rude show down in uh, Chelsea of my book I did called uh, Just Between Us and these big six foot prints of this naked boy that were in, in that book. And Lou and uh, Lou, Laurie Anderson came in, I think, to see the show while we were hanging at, at uh, American Fine Arts in, in uh, Chelsea. Um, a lot of the times on the podcast, I will ask, and you've already talked about the one that got away, that was Betty Davis, but what uh, what well, she didn't get away from being photographed. I photographed right. her many times, but yeah. Right, just from this particular ad campaign. Project, right. But yeah, I'll just ask how I usually ask it. It goes like this. So the first question is, uh, what particular photo shoot kind of broke you? Which one, in, like specifically? Was it the interview stuff? Was it the... Well, probably the my first shoot in New York City with David Bowie. Yeah. And, you know, 
you know, I did early, early shoots with Streisand and Midler and all, and they were all, you know, monumental in my career and in my mind, certainly. But I think knowing that I was going to be doing a personal shoot for pictures for David Bowie, and I did many for 15 years after that. Yeah. Uh, definitely, I would say that shoot when I had David Bowie. I mean, I remember David Bowie telling me we're in, we're in a stall in, at J.S. Van Dam's in New York doing coke, and he says, how's it feel to have taken some of the greatest pictures ever of David Bowie? You can imagine high, on, wow. high out of my mind to hear that out of his mouth in a little wow. cubicle was pretty awesome, you know. It has so, to be. But, but that having shot him was, you know, that was major and uh, on every level because I had so much respect for him and love for him as a person. Yeah. He was pretty wonderful. I don't know if you saw the recent documentary. I did. I him. thought it was a bit strange, but it was, yeah, I saw it? it in Germany. Yeah. I wasn't overwhelmed. I mean, I adored David and I adored a lot of the footage. I found the movie a bit uh, indulgent. I've, I felt that as it needed, it actually, this, the footage was, Great, but it wasn't the strongest stuff. The early stuff was really nice. That when he was on concert stage, you know, some of that stuff was wonderful. Yeah. I'd never well, there seen was a that. ton of great stuff in there to see and enjoy. But I just thought overall the the and and honestly, I can't be critical about that because that was the director's POV and what he wanted out of it. But I thought it was a bit self indulgent. I saw it in Munich. I didn't like the re- the repetition of footage that they kept using over and over again, and it made me feel like it, this is missing narration. It needs a little yeah. bit of narration to push some of the stuff. Yeah, a, little his too, voice. a little bit too much automated graphics, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. It left a little bit. I felt like it left a little bit too, like too many questions and, right. and things I needed answered or something like that. But anyway, I right. just loved seeing him again. That was wonderful. Um, all right. So let's talk about a shoot that may have gotten away from you, like something you really wanted but didn't get. And that could be the Betty Davis or could be something else. No, no. I mean, I mean, one of the shoots that didn't get away from me, but I got sick and couldn't do it and had to, but I passed it on to a friend of mine was shooting Vincent Price because I was always a fan of all the horror wow. stars. So I missed him. I met him later in life, but we never got to shoot. Um, the, the one person I chased for a while and then I just gave up who I would still love to do. I had this idea of doing a book on Bridget Bardot at oh, nice. her old age now. I wanted like a week or two weeks to just follow her around like a, a fly on the wall with just a, a, my, a 35 millimeter camera and document her life today. Because wow. as a little boy growing up, she was my big crush. And I snuck into theaters to see, you know, like, and God created woman and early movies with her and always thought the most of her. And I still had like, even now I know she's kind of out there and doing her thing, but this, you know, she's never did any work and she's grown old and, and she's just, you know, just the contrast to put together like a book of the street, almost a real film noir type book on her life now, going to the markets, taking care of all her million animals and dogs and Saint-Tropez in Paris, where I think she's... Wow. It's a, she, anyway, this was years ago that I was trying to do that, but that was someone I always wanted to shoot. I always wanted to shoot Alexander Gutnoff. And I mean, Alexander Gutnoff, Gorbachev, Jesus. Mikhail right. Gorbachev. And I shot Gutnoff. Gorbachev. And uh, I'd met him at a couple of the you know Global Green events, but we never got to shoot. Uh, Gudnoff's uh, publicist was lived here in town. Evelyn Shriver, I believe, was her name. And was Alexander uh, Gudnoff's publicist? Yeah. yeah, and he died way too early. He way had, too early. I knew him very well, and uh, he was really a lovely guy. And yeah, that yeah. was very sad. He seemed that way. We shot hard. a lot. He, very early in my career, I photographed him. Yeah. Talk a little bit about like, especially in the early days, because it was not always easy to be a gay man as a photographer working either in Kansas or leaving Kansas to go to L.A. and then and trying to 
live in that culture? What was that like then? Because it was not as popular or not as no, it was it was as, tough. Yeah, and uh, you like? know, and I was pretty self conscious growing up in the Midwest, so I wasn't exactly the totally out person. But I'll just tell you the quick funny out story. So I had back in the mid seventies, I had all my straight friends, my gay friends, and then my friends that knew both sides of my life, right. and so. I was getting ready. To, I was living with a, a a young man at the time, and we were pretty much the same age then, probably like mid twenties, uh, twenty six. I think is about how old I was. Uh, one of my friends, I I'm getting ready to go to a to dinner for my birthday with one of my friends invited me to dinner, one of my gay friends, and then all of a sudden I get this phone call from one of my straight friends saying, "I'm so <laughs> sorry, but I can't make it tonight." And my mind now is flashing. Make what tonight? Your surprise birthday party, and I'm like, wow. So I got Uh-oh. to the birthday party and there were my straight friends, my gay friends, the people that knew both <laughs> and my celebrity friends. I think it was like Keith Carradine, Gary Busey, and I think Scott Glenn. This is back in the you know mid 70s. Right. Those are my celebrity friends that I palled around with back then. And so, you know, I thought, well, what the fuck? I ordered three double gin and tonics, downed them in two seconds. And I thought, <laughs> hey, you know, people are going to love me for who I am or they're not going to love me. And then they're not my friends. And that was the end of it all. It was probably the most liberating moment of my life. Did something change? Did people turn your back on you? Did their back no, on you? Or didn't, no, no. No one cared. I was the one that was at fault for being so insecure right. and being so uptight. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. You know, you've been working with uh, Elton on the AIDS Foundation for a long time. What is the name of the foundation? The Elton John AIDS Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, easy enough. But you've been you've been working on that for a very long yeah, time. Long. I've known did Elton you help him start it? Or did, did he start no, it? No, not at own? all. He just asked me to be on the board and and he's an incredible person, but I've been with him for quite a few years. Yeah. Pretty much. What year was that that you joined the, on the board? God, I don't know. 25, 30 years ago. Something like that. I don't wow. know how many years it is for them now. I think 25 years or something like that. Maybe more. I'm so bad at the dates, but I've been working with him a long time. And he's a, he's an extraordinary person and he puts his heart and soul into it as, as do all the people connected with the organization. And loves photography more than just about anybody I've ever seen. I've never seen so much photography on a person's walls. Oh yeah. He has, uh, uh, at the t- a couple of years ago, my boyfriend and I at the time, uh, went and visited them in, uh, the South of France near Nice. Yeah. And, uh, in central Bay in that area and uh near cap for up in the hills there and uh had a great time and this house is just you know our bedroom had like all different artists in each bedroom in each room it was pretty incredible he loves photography yeah he, sure he has does. his own dealer and his own curator and all that oh, stuff yeah help him sift through it what's uh what piece does he have that just blew you away he has many many pieces i mean they'd go back to the beginning of time i wouldn't even know where to begin you know like all the great giants of the early early days and stuff he has so much stuff that i just love i know the a gallery or the a gallery for fine arts in new orleans has a lot of great pieces i'm sure he's dealt with them maybe well he dealt for years i know with jackson fine art and uh right but you know a lot of the early like the first not the first but i think like the third or the seventh you know they had down in new orleans and i remember seeing that had a little curtain over the top of it and you had to Lift it up to look at it. So I know yeah, he's exactly. got some of that stuff too, but it's fantastic. I just love that he loves photography as much as he does. Um, I, I guess I want to talk, I would love to talk a little bit about uh, the winery. Like, How did that begin? How did that start for you besides just love? What was the next step? Well, I, in uh, you know, around the time that I realized I was kind of changing my uh, outward vocation, so to speak, I kind of was, felt like I'd been there and done that with the celebrity photography and certainly done enough books on nudes. And I started in, in teaching and, and doing workshops. About the same time, I got a phone call 
which would have been around 2005, 2006. We want to put a time stamp on it from a wine shop up in uh, St. Helena. And they asked me if I'd be interested in shooting a wine label for Dave Finney. Well, I was a huge fan of Dave Finney. He'd made a couple of wines I really loved. One of them, um, I wasn't such a big fan of Prisoner, but that was a famous one. But I, right. I always thought it was a little too sweet for me in terms of just forward, too forward of fruit. But he made a wine called Mercury Head, which was a spectacular Cabernet. Long story short, he asked me if I wanted to shoot a label for him for a wine called Papillon, which is that it looks like a tattoo on the fingers. And we shot that. And that evening I went over to his house and we're processing the pictures and having dinner. And he looks up at me and he says, Greg, what do you want to do? I said, what do you mean? What do I want to do? He says, well, you've shot everybody. He says, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, if I want to be candid with you, I said, it could be kind of cool to uh, make some wine. Hmm. And I said, he said, well, let's do it. I said, well, I don't know anything about wine. He says, you know a hell of a lot about wine and you've got a great palate. Let's just play. And so that's how it was born. And wow. uh, did a vintage of the grapes I wanted to, did another vintage. And the third round, he says, all right, I think you're ready. I'm going to bring in 20 barrel samples with my assistant winemaker, this is Dave Finney. And he said, I want you to taste through the 20 barrels, Greg, and tell me your top four picks. I said, okay. And that was kind of not like putting me on the spot or anything. Yeah. So I went in and uh, tasted through 20 barrels. And rated wow. them. And I rated my top four. And then he came in and rated his top four. And he wanted to see if we had any crossovers. And three of my four choices were out of his four choices. So no way. it kind of blew him away. Yeah. So wow. I picked what I liked. And that's how he basically determined the blend, which is basically a Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc co-ferment with a few dashes of this and a few dashes of that added in right. to balance out the Bordeaux blend. So that's kind of how it started. And I made wine from 2000. Six to 2018. That's a long time. What made you decide to get out of it? Uh, economic reasons. I just I wasn't selling the last couple of vintages, and they were terrific. But the wines had gotten. I bought very, you know, me. I bought very expensive fruit. Was making a fairly expensive wine, and unless you get off your ass and get out and promote it, the first few years right. I didn't have to because I sold it on my name and on this and that. Right. I sold it solidly. Sold out every vintage. Huh. I was very lucky up through. Uh, 2016, 15, 16, and then I made 15, 16, 17. I ended up selling it off, actually, and sold off the 18 juice, so I actually ended up doing great. But it was just, you know, it was a wine that was about $140 a bottle, so it wasn't cheap. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be sitting on a bunch of wine, so (laughs) I guess. (laughs) That makes sense. But but I also did it for 15 years. I kind of feel like I'd been there and done it, so it was perfect. I think you're a chameleon. I think that's what what we are. We both are like this. I, I have this energy where I'm... I just kind of want to try something new. It's interesting. Are you shooting a lot now still? Are you shooting a lot? I am. I'm shooting a lot still, but I'm kind of coming to the same place you are. I've come to a crossroads again. I'm getting not dissatisfied, but I think uh, our generation, or at least some of the older people that we look up to have no connection to social media. They don't really know like what this is. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a great social media guy, as you know. Well, I don't think I do do Facebook pretty well because honestly, That's more social for my friends. I'm not really trying to make a statement on Instagram. And every once in a while I go, oh, I better put something up on Instagram, but I don't do much on it. I think I've figured it out what it is. And it's everyone that makes the content and has for years doesn't have much care or much interest in social right. media. And then down at the other end of the scale, you've got basically a bunch of people who think they're curators who just gather a bunch of creativity together and they don't really have the content. So it's polar opposites. You've got people that have a crowd 
but they have to rob, steal, borrow, repurpose, you know, content. And then you right. got us at the other right. end of the scale that create and do all the things. And I, I feel for some reason, I feel interested shrinking that gap. I feel like I want to bring these two sides together because honestly, our age group needs a little help. I think we need a little help. Yeah kind of learning the social media aspect. Well, that's it. I'm not good with it. I screw up stuff when I try to put things on Instagram. <laughs> I screw stuff up. I hit the wrong buttons. I do this. It's a mess. So, Well, everybody you know, does just, that, Greg. Yeah, I do it probably more than most people. So that's why I don't <laughs> do much on Instagram. But I'm I'm a devout Facebook person. And I know everybody said nobody's using Facebook anymore. Everybody's on Instagram. And now there's new ones newer than Instagram, I guess. So, oh, TikTok the is hell? the newest. You know, there's all types no, of No, there's a newer which, one than that even. There's another one that's out Discord, there. Discord. There's another one. There's like there's a I lot have of new no ones. Idea. Trying to keep up with them because some of them come and go. And you can't keep up with them. They're just, they've yeah. disappeared before you get a chance to really jump in. But I would love to see us get more involved. So I kind of feel like I need to hang around and help our generation also help the younger generation with the content part of it. I, I don't think they're really great at, at making content. Yeah, but I also their don't think they really are, want that help either, to be honest. you know, They don't, but they should. And I think that's the, that's the middle part. Millennials feel that they're fairly entitled and that they know how to do what they want to do the way they do. And they like to skip all the intermediary steps. I think they do because I think what's they, what they're faced with is academia. What they're faced with is probably scorn a little bit from us. You know what I mean? Because we're pretty hard yeah. on them because they didn't work yeah. hard enough and they didn't uh, learn hard enough. And so yeah. that's kind of – there's that little – that's the gap I'm describing is yeah. it would be great to kind of shrink that a little bit. And I would love to hang around to see if I could help with that. I don't know sure. why I feel driven by that, but I've always – even in high school, I never belonged to any groups. I always tried to bring groups together and put everybody together. So that's kind of just how I am. But I, I, I would love right. to see that change a little bit because I don't feel like our generation should struggle with reintroducing themselves to a, to a younger generation. And we are right. we're having trouble. And I, and I would like to help on both sides if I can. So that's kind of why I'm kind of hanging around, I think, to do this, I think, a little bit. That challenge, that's okay. a challenge because it's a big gap. So I have no problem with that. But I just would, I'd love to help you even in, if I can. And so that's, yeah. I think it's, it's a wonderful thing because, man, People look at your work and just like, and you got a whole new generation, Greg, that looks at your stuff and go, wow, because they are, what I'm finding is the younger generation is actually really interested in, in it, but they just don't know how to get there. And yeah, no one's I helping. that's probably true. They yeah. don't know how to get there. Um, so after the winery, um, then- after the winery and teaching in Mendocino and doing my European workshops, I'm now more focused on the European classes and some classes back East I've been doing in Maine. And, uh, you know, I want to spend more time traveling and fishing. You know, I love to fish. And, you do uh, love to fish. All those things. So that's what I've, that's what's been occupying my time. And then during COVID where I couldn't really get out and do anything was the birth of, you know, the latest project that I'm really pleased with. That's right. Let's talk about it. A couple of years ago, I uh, thought, well, it might be fun. To sh- I have all these great African and voodoo tribal art, whatnot. And I thought it might be fun to try to do some portraits because the faces were great. And uh, God knows that, you know, how much uh, basically African art has influenced European and American culture. So I thought, well, this could be a fun project. And as the project uh, evolved, like any project, it starts in one place and then it kind of takes its own, finds its own uh, path. And I started creating these portraits. I thought, you know, these, I like what I'm doing, but I think it's, it's, uh, it needs another dimension. And at that point, I spoke to Gary Johns, who's been my creative director on uh, more than half of my books. Right. And I'd been a huge fan of his art. He used to take pictures. He, he still takes pictures, obviously, of items in decay, street photography, graffiti. He does scanning, illustration, 
torn wow. paper, basically a form of photo collage. Yeah. And I thought to Gary, I said, Gary, what if you take my photographs and use them as an intermediary tool with your artwork? In other words, mm. kind of shove them in the middle of your art, uh, artwork and then let your artwork be influenced by the photographs I've taken and let them kind of find their own voice. And he thought, well, your pictures look great. I don't know why you'd want to do that. I said, well, humor me and give it a shot. <laughs> Yeah. And the next morning, I got a couple of pieces back, and they were fucking killer. I thought they were wow. Like, wow, this is amazing, and I got very excited. And Gary isn't really a Photoshop guy, so enter the third person, uh, Rick Allen, who kind of helped just kind of finesse the pictures a little bit and get us kind of all in the right direction. Not altering Gary's pictures, but just making sure all the layer stacks and everything everything's kind of like working. I've and, seen Rick uh, Allen's name before. How would we know Rick? Uh, Rick has also taken some of my workshops, but he's a, a very talented uh, creative consultant, and, and he's been handling the retouching a little bit on these pictures. Right. But what ended up happening was this symbiotic relationship where every night I would shoot three or four pictures a day because that's how it would take three or four hours to shoot three or four portraits. Just like a, in the real life, it's not like yeah. cataloging a doll because I'm lighting them, you know, with dramatic highlights and shadows and everything. You're doing and this then, like you do your, all of your shoots. You're exactly just, you're approaching the same. It, you know, same we approach. played music. Get Jerry and I, you know, my personal assistant, Jerry and I would shoot them every afternoon at 4 o'clock. Whatever we were doing, we stopped. And we'd shoot from like 4 to 6, 4 to 7. Yeah. Sometimes we'd start earlier. And it was just a labor of love. And then I would make the process, the focus stacks, get them to Rick to check all the alignment again. Then they'd go to Gary. Then he would have a few days, kind of work through pictures and and. They'd come back to me. And so this was how this project evolved. It just got better and better. And as a matter of fact, just on my trip back to Kansas City uh, 10 days ago, I went to a big African art dealer back there and I bought 50 more pieces to continue wow. the project. Wow. So, you know, it's a project that's a labor of love. We don't have to answer to anybody. It's our, the three of our <laughs> project. And uh, yeah. the shows are just starting. The first big show is going to be in Palm Springs, January 26th, and then a really big show in Lubeck uh, outside of Hamburg in the church of St. Petri, I think in July and August, wow. it'll be a cool show. I think it's a really would, beautiful yeah. gallery. Yeah. And I've seen it online, but, um, the, uh, I was, I was actually able to see some of these items that you'd collected in the studio while you were still kind of finishing the project. Right. It looks right. so interesting. It has yeah. so much, I remember, gosh, it's got so much, I don't want to say darkness, but just depth maybe would be a good way to describe well, I mean, it. How would you describe it? You know? Yeah. I mean, well, it's tribal art. It's uh, voodoo and fetish dolls and masks. So, you know, it's they're intense, fun. I mean, you know, it's not voodoo like Haitian voodoo or what you see right. in, in New Orleans. I mean, this is this these were used more for curing and help right. with people among tribes. Certainly some of them were used for influential means as well. Right. But uh, in general, different different approach. It has a different, like here, when it comes to America, it usually has a different take. And so as it was, it just, it, it probably had a lot to do with healing, a lot to yeah, do exactly. with and uh, I think that future what wealth, you'll see in, you know. What you'll see in Gary's art in the final pieces, and I, I had Gary take the front seat conceptually and developmentally and from a producing point of view, it's my project and, and my concept. But Gary's artwork is really the star of this project. And I made him take a, a, a front seat on this project. He said, oh, you should keep up front because your name is more well-known. It's, it's not about that, Gary. You've taken a back seat to me designing my books and making <laughs> me look good for a million years. This is your time to kind of step up. And he's he's grateful and happy because it's the first time he's gotten a, a big book out and everything. That's and, great. You know, it looks good. I mean, we did this beautiful limited edition, which you can see here. Wow, look at that. And Gosh, I sent you beautiful. a picture of it. You know, I sent yeah. you a, a photograph you can use for the 
podcast yes, as, a, as a promo. And, Absolutely. But it's pretty great. So the book's in there. Everything's numbered and signed. And then in the book is comes with, uh, wow. it's only an addition of 50. We've already sold half of them. Right. Uh, it comes with two signed prints. One by that's Gary, beautiful. my picture on the left, and Gary's picture on the right. Uh, now, remember, I saw the early stages of this, and it has changed right. a lot since then. It is unbelievable. The book looks very, very different from what you saw. Yeah. Uh, I think you have the latest PDF, I'm, I'm guessing. but Yeah, yeah. And I'll make sure to include all you. of this. Yeah, I'll put all this in the notes yeah. in, the, in the podcast and uh, in social media. Yeah. We'll mention it and everything because this is a wonderful book, and I want you guys to go out there and get it. It's it's great to have a piece, not just from two artists that have dedicated themselves to just pure art, like no pretense, nothing behind it, just for the sake of art. It seems like this is what this book was about, is just art itself and no pretense. That's what I love about it. There's just, there's nothing about it. And even, even you trying to kind of step out of the limelight a little bit, it lets me know that, that, that you're not really concerned necessarily about celebrity and that type of stuff. You're really concerned about art. And I love that. I love that. Well, I wanted to do something different. I mean, I felt there wasn't too many more uh, things for me to say about the world of celebrity or the world of the figure study. Sorry, just checking out. That's okay. We're here. We're at our conclusion. We're okay. here. Um, anything we left out? Is anything you want to talk All about? All right. What, what do you have? What is going on? What's next for you? What are you up to? Well, my obsession, like yours, is spacesuits. I have decided just to become an expert on spacesuits, weirdly. Uh, that's my, that's what I've been working on for about 15 years and really taken a lot of heat in the last two just because I've been looking around for projects to do. And all I did was go back and go, what about that? And started going in on that the last two years. So I've been working on spacesuits. Uh, it sounds simple, but you know, the whole niching down process is, is wow. that's what you do. You get a very specific thing. And the thing is that people don't realize this is that they were all handmade. All of them were handmade by these little wow. sweet ladies at ILC Dover wow. in Rhode Island. And all of them were handmade, but, and they did sew these together just like they would make anything. Wow. Wow. To me, that's fascinating. Something that high yeah. end, that high tech, Right. It's handmade. Some of them are 28 layers, some 21, some wow. less than that. How big and that's are they? Kind of, oh, gosh, the spacesuits. I mean, most people, in, in meeting uh, Dr. Schmidt last night, uh, most of the astronauts are right, not even six feet. They're under six feet. So hmm. uh, they so they're, are very they're, short. These are all life-size. These are real life-size suits. Yeah, I'm, I'm shooting, shooting yeah. life-size suits. Okay, I didn't I prefer, understand that. Okay, yeah, wow. Yeah, sorry. I prefer to shoot them instead of laying on tables. I've seen Dan Winters shoot them laying on the archive tables, and right. I just, I'd, I'd rather not. I'd rather see them up on a body form right? because they look like they would be if they were someone in it. In you use, know? So right, that's, exactly. Well, that makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah, that's kind of what I've been obsessed with. a little more with. depth, yeah. I really would like to become kind of an expert on this only because I don't think anybody's talking about what the, these, these things are works of art. They're wonderful. Oh, of course they are. And I love it. And I love the dedication. Where do you have time. to go to shoot these? Man, those things are spread to the four winds. Every, oh, so they're all over. They're yeah. Every Smithsonian I satellite. Um, I know that I, I just came back from uh, Vancouver, BC uh, and I stopped by the science uh, museum there and there was Collins. Yeah, but yeah, so that's kind of where I've doubled down. I've doubled down on this because I want to finish this and make a book out of it, perhaps or an exhibit yeah. or both. And that's kind right. of where I'm at. It's the same thing, same kind of thing. You just after a while, you want to do something that you've never done, something you're challenged by. So what's what's um what's coming up next for you after? So January, you've got the exhibit in Palm Springs. So January, I've got yeah, this is that's a good question. So January, I have that show. February fifth, believe it or not, I fly to Sharza, which I think is spelled S H A R. J-A-H, check it. 
It's just outside Dubai. I have a big exhibition at Exposure 2023, and nice. that's spelled with an X, X-P-O-S-U-R-E. So I have that coming up and near, it's right by Dubai. So that's a very exciting. I've never been to the Middle East, and I'll spend that's a little amazing. time and see Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And then from there, I'm going to take a little vacation with a couple of dear friends and see Egypt. Oh, wow. So I mean, that's the other thing I've had been a little distracted dealing with my guy in Egypt this morning because nice. he booked a flight for us leaving from Cairo at 530 in the morning to ask one thing. I said, it's not going to fly. I'm 73. The other guy is 76. <laughs> and we're not going to fly there in an hour and get there at 630 after an hour flight in the morning and then sit until the afternoon to catch an, another flight to where we're going next. I'm not going to, you know, I'm getting up at the four o'clock in the morning not to do anything before three in the afternoon. Doesn't make sense to me. No, there's a lot. That's a stop off point for a lot of part of the world. Yeah. They have hotels inside. I've done that. I've stayed in Doha before in, in, uh, in Qatar and just they have a hotel internally. You go to the hotel, you stay overnight and they have sleep pods. They have a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, just, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do no, that. No, I'm not doing it. It's a pain in the ass. But yeah. um, that sounds fantastic. And, and you're doing workshops. So that's kind of what's up for the beginning of the year. And then, you know, some workshops. I'll be in the Dolomites doing some workshops at the end of May, early June, which I did last year, which were really great workshops and very successful. We'll have some announcing that soon. So that'd be something kind of good to plug my next work, German workshop. It's uh, up in the Dolomites, right on the crux of Italy and Austria and Switzerland and Germany. It's kind of wild. It's great wines, beautiful locations, and pretty spectacular. Should we follow you on Facebook to try to find out some of the dates and times for these? Yeah, or it'll be on my website, which is you can post, which is just Gorman Photography. It's called actually my workshop. My GormanPhotography.com is my website. And then they Absolutely. can go to workshops and they'll see them. I think we've just posted. We posted one of them, if not both of them. The one in, in Maine, which will be next fall. And then the ones in the Dolomites, which will be in June. And then other awesome. workshops upcoming will be posted as, as uh, they become available. That's amazing. Greg, so much. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Looking forward to seeing you in the future and all the things you're, you're doing. So Hopefully we'll see you each so other much. next month in uh, Palm Springs, Palm Desert. Would love that. Okay. Absolutely. Take Thank care. you, Greg. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our YouTube channel, Alan Clark Photography, for exclusive content like behind-the-scenes footage of celebrity shoots and amazing photography tips designed to up your game. The Photo Untaken is produced and edited by Wise Company. Take your podcast to the next level and regain your time by visiting thewise.co. That's thewise.co. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.